Wow. So, yeah, I show that because Denise earlier today was like, I dare you to, you know, work that into your sermon. I said, say I won't. So we did. But also we're in a series called Supporting Roles, and I thought that video highlighted nicely all the different roles that were played in the Christmas story, right? And Christmas is right around the corner, so any week to show it, it would be this week. But for some of us, if you're uh, science fiction heads, if you're a movie buff, or if you just like Star Wars, Christmas came a little early because Rogue One came out just a couple days ago. Now, it took a lot of dedication on my part, took a lot of uh, intentionality that for the past year, I, I haven't watched a single preview. It's the second Star Wars in a row where if a preview came on, I close my eyes, plug my ears. Like it, when Steph sees a, a horror movie preview, she just hates them, right? So she will close her eyes, plug her ears, and mutter under her breath to just drown it all out because she doesn't want to see that, right? That was me in movie theaters and on my own couch as a grown man anytime a Star Wars preview would come on because I just I didn't want to know ahead of time. Maybe you can feel me on this. I feel like a two-minute preview these days shows you about two-thirds of the plot. And I was just like, I really don't want to know all that, right? I don't want to know the first three plot twists and what's happening and everything like that. So I know you can relate because I don't think anybody enjoys spoilers, right? People that post what happens in a movie beforehand. Like, I know half of you probably haven't seen it yet, and if I were to detail all the plot twists and, and who dies and how, right, you would either tackle me or walk out, right? Because we don't like spoilers. Then he said, amen. Wayne, have you seen it yet? All right, he's shaking his head. He would be one to tackle me or walk out, right? He would unfriend me on every social media platform. And that's all right, because that's why we love him. Nobody likes spoilers. I like to go in blind myself. But here's why I say all that. And you got to bear with me here. Some of us live that way with our Bible. We know that it's a big deal. We realize that one day everything's going to be revealed. Every promise will be fulfilled. Every truth will understand fully. But in the meantime, we go about life and we don't dig too deep into its pages. It's almost like we go through life blind. You know, it's cute when we watch that video and the kids are kind of fumbling around with the Christmas story, right? Like the, the wise men gave him Jordans and Mary was folding the laundry when Gabriel came to tell her about the baby Jesus. And we might laugh as well if, if kids were like, yeah, Sodom and Gomorrah were a married couple or Joan of Arc was Noah's wife. But what's not funny is there was a survey of grown adults in church, and 50% of them thought Sodom and Gomorrah was a married couple from the Bible. 12% thought that Joan of Arc was Noah's wife from the book of Genesis. You know, Lifeway Research found that 90% of churchgoers, quote-unquote, desire to please and honor Jesus in all that I do. But it's ironic that in that same survey, it found that a lot of these people, they're not reading the Bible to find out if they're actually pleasing him in all that they do. But we roll so often with what's passed on to us, whether it's blogs and sermons, books and podcasts, bits and pieces here and there. You know, a recent survey, it asked Christians, how does God speak to you? It's just surveyed hundreds of people that go to church. How does God speak to you? What do you think the number one response was? I heard the Bible. Through the Bible, through the church. Dreams. You see it a lot in the Christmas story, like six or seven, right? The number one answer was my pastor, how people receive God speaking to them. Where do you think the Bible came in? A lot of you said it for number one. Four, sixth, getting warmer, seven. Came in number seven. Number seven. (laughs) 
It's crazy to me because I think most of the Christians that were surveyed would admit that, yes, God, through divine inspiration, through the work of the Holy Spirit, he wrote the Bible. He wrote a book. He wrote it for me, and he wrote it for you, and yet a lot of the same people, they don't read it. And when we don't read it, we don't know it. And when we don't know the truth of God's word, it's so hard to engage a culture that's, that's full of relativism, where the, the word of 2016, according to Oxford, was post-truth, where truth and facts no longer matter. It's all about what makes you feel good. It's all about your feelings. That's the word of the year. And when we don't know God's truth, it's hard to engage the culture that's struggling with truth. And I'm not saying that this, these surveys, they speak to our campus directly. I use the word we here loosely. I respect your intelligence more of the Bible. But my hope as your pastor is that when we come together on the weekends, that your hunger for God's word, it wouldn't be filled. But that your hunger for God's word would be sparked. That your hunger for God's presence, his purpose for your life, it would be elevated because you've come here to worship as a church. You know, I was in a... a pastor's session for young leaders, man, years and years ago at this point, Pastor Chris Hill, uh, who was an amazing preacher. You want to podcast an amazing sermon, go listen to Pastor Chris Hill. Um, but he was leading us, and he was challenging our, our, our knowledge of God's word. And he said, so how many of you think that Noah led all the animals into the ark two by two? And a majority of the room kind of shyly slid their hands up. And he, he challenged us in that moment because the clean animals, it says right in the Bible that Noah led them up Seven at a time. Otherwise, you realize when he's offering those sacrifices after they safely made it through the flood, he'd be, like, making species of animals extinct. But no, for the clean animals, he brought seven up. So he challenged us in that. You could have a pop quiz as well for who we're going to look at tonight, the three kings in the Christmas narrative. Because it's funny, it doesn't say there were three. It's just become tradition. We just know there was more than one. Could have been two, could have been 2,000, but they had three gifts. It also doesn't say they were kings. They were magi, which can be translated sorcerers or wise men. And all our nativities are a joke because they didn't show up at the manger when he was first born. They came years later when he was, as the Bible says, a child. You know, we can learn from the wise men a lesson in diligence. Because they could have, they knew about the Messiah that was coming through prophecy. They could have seen the star and said, you know what, I bet that's related to the Messiah that's to come. And I bet if we check Facebook or Twitter in a couple of days, somebody will be posting about it. Maybe somebody will come back who witnessed it and they'll come back and tell us about it. But no, they didn't want to just spectate. They wanted to participate. You know, don't just be a spectator in your walk with God. Don't just be a spectator in church. They went to see for themselves. And all we know is that they came from the east. Many people think it was likely near Babylon or where the Israel, Israelites had been held up in exile. And geographically, that's right around 1,000 miles, one way, 1,000 miles. To you, maybe that doesn't sound like much, but in that day and age, most people didn't go further than 30 miles from their hometown. Traveling wasn't easy. Traveling was difficult. It was dangerous. So this mention that Matthew makes of this journey that they went on, it's remarkable for that time. It's remarkable. 1,000 miles, and somewhere around 1,000 miles most likely. And you know what's also funny? As I looked at my Bible, this Bible is about 1,000 pages long, 1,032 pages if you want to be precise. No commentary, just straight scripture, about 1,000 pages. The wise men went about 1,000 miles on their journey. Let me just encourage you tonight. Don't just spectate. You know, we're, we're thinking, maybe you're thinking, maybe you're not a planner about resolutions for 2017. Go on a journey. Go on a journey. If you've never read the Bible from cover to cover, start in 2017. 
Maybe you don't finish, but start. It might take you two years. It might take you three years. There's no shame in that. But I'm encouraging you. Pick up God's word and dive deep into his truths. It's the whole purpose of this series, to not just skim over the Christmas narrative or let somebody else tell us about it, but to go deep into the truth that God has for us. You know, I gave my life to Christ in 2005. Yeah, that's right. 2005. And I've read the Bible once a year from cover to cover ever since then. And it refreshes me. It refuels me. I see new things every time I go to the same passage again. Because how many of you guys know the Bible is God's living word? It's him revealing himself to us page by page. New truths, new glimpses of his love and his grace. And maybe some of you females, you're sick of me relating to sci-fi and gladiator. Well, in the movie Notebook, Ryan Gosling, I believe his name was Noah, Right? Well, I don't know who's going to fact check me on that. Anyways, he writes to the love of his life, Allie, once a day for 365 days, these love letters. And to sabotage that relationship, her mother hid the letters. And only later did she find out that he was writing them. How many of us sabotage our own relationship with God because we don't pick up this 66-book love letter that he's written to us that reveals who he is, the plans he has for our life, and the love he has for us? We hide it ourselves back on a shelf where it's just gathering dust. Dig into your word. Let me just encourage you. Any resolution for 2017 that you're going to be actively reading the word of God. All that's an introduction. That's just a little challenge. We're going to turn to Matthew 2, verses 1 through 12. And we're going to look at two groups of men that knew their word, that were familiar with the word of God. And their responses to, as it says in the message version, the word taking on flesh and moving into the neighborhood. We see two different responses from two different groups of quote-unquote wise men. So in verse 1 of chapter 2, it says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and they worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. You know, there's a whole sermon there, just reading it right now, about when you encounter Christ, you don't go back the same way that you came. They went back a different route. But I want to look at tonight, because when I was reading this again, just studying for this series, I was reminded and took note that there's two groups of quote-unquote, wise men in this passage. And, and the, the first group I want to look at is the, what you could call the other wise men. They're in Matthew 2, verses 3 through 6. 
where it says, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. You know, when it says Jerusalem, that speaks obviously to the city, the holy city of Jerusalem. But it also speaks just in the use of language to the people that represented them, the religious and political leaders of Israel that show up just in the next verse. You know, we see that when Herod was disturbed, they were disturbed. When Herod was shook, they were shook because they had aligned themselves politically with Herod, and they were leaning on him for security. And when I read that, I think, man, what in my life am I leaning on, am I aligned with, where if that was shook, disturbed, removed, I would crumble? Because if it's not Jesus, if it's not God, then I need to rearrange my life. Because there's crazy consequences to when you align yourself with something other than God. You look at these religious leaders, these men of Jewish faith, these men who, according to tradition, probably had a lot of the Old Testament memorized word for word. They find out that the prophesied Messiah had likely come. And why aren't they grabbing their things to just run after him? We talked last week about how these shepherds, blue-collar Ordinary shepherds out in this field, they didn't talk about, man, who's going to wash the sheep? Who's going to stay back? No, they all just took off and hurried to find this Messiah and this Savior. Why didn't the religious elite? It seems like a reasonable response. Like when you drive by Krispy Kreme and the the light flashes, you get donuts because that's what you do. When the star lights up in the sky and you realize the Savior, the Messiah is here, if you're a religious leader who's familiar with all the promises and all the prophecies related to that, why wouldn't you go off running to find him? Essentially, they're like, I'll pass. I'm going to hang out here. You know, again, the next verse, it calls these men scribes and priests. They had head knowledge. When Herod asked them, where is this Messiah to be born, they're not like, oh, well, let me, let me get my Wi-Fi going and check Google. No, they knew right away it's going to be Bethlehem because that's what Micah said. They knew the, the facts. They knew the, they had the knowledge, but they were unmoved. You know, some people today have likewise become satisfied with head knowledge to where it no longer connects their head to their heart. They live spiritually paralyzed. The knowledge in their head doesn't make it to their heart and move their hands and their feet. You know, as much as we need to know what the Bible says, and I encourage you in reading your Bible before we even got to the passage, we also need to realize that you can know the Bible and still miss Jesus. You can read the Bible like a newspaper, know all the stats, be able to quote verses, and yet it never changes you. You know, I was sharing my testimony with somebody just the other day, a couple days ago, about how I grew up in the church, and I was raised in Sunday school. So I knew all the stories. I knew the characters' names. I knew most of the names of God and what his attributes were, but it didn't change me. It didn't inform the way I lived. It, it didn't move me in my heart. And now as somebody, years and years and years later, called to be a, a religious leader, when I read in the Gospels, that Jesus is challenging the religious leaders of his day or saying, woe to you for this. I always pause and think, man, am I in that same boat? You know, there's an author and a pastor, Paul David Tripp. He wrote a book called Dangerous Calling. It's about the calling that pastors have, leaders have in the church. And just this idea that you can spend so much time in the word that it becomes a victim of what we talked about last week, this idea of intentional blindness, what psychologists refer to as when there's this, this new stimulus Stimuli, whatever the plural, the singular, whatever. When, it, when, you, when there's the new stimulus, you notice it right away, but then after a while it fades to the background. And how you can spend so much time in the Word where it's, it stops moving you if you don't keep 
the right perspective. Like that fan you turn on when you sleep, it just fades to the background. The music I turn on when I study fades to the background. Your child saying mom for the hundredth time while you're trying to finish a task kind of just fades to the background, right? We can do the same with the Bible where we come what I call just a professional Christian, studied and scholarly, yet unchanged and unmoved by God's word. You know, bad things happen when maturity is marked by knowing instead of being. Because we'll try to master the word of God instead of letting the word of God master us. Where our goal is to know ideas and verses intimately, but we never get to know God intimately. You know, when, when I read the Bible, I don't want it to draw me to a desk to write a sermon. I want it to first draw me to my knees. Because I don't want to just be an expert on God. I want to have encounters with God. There's a difference between knowing about and really knowing somebody. Come on, we don't have to look any further than, than social media for that, Facebook, Twitter. You can find out who somebody's spouse is, what the names of their kids are, what the name of their pet is, what they had for lunch yesterday, the song they have stuck in their head because they posted that. Like if somebody's uh, page is public, you can get to know them real well. You can Facebook stalk somebody without even realizing you're Facebook stalking them. It's just that open these days. I could spend 10 minutes looking at somebody's page and put together a, a two to five minute presentation on them. And you might say, man, he knows them really well. I just know about them. <laughs> I just know some details about them. You know, I grew up collecting sports cards. I could rattle off names and statistics. I also grew up collecting comic books. I could rattle off names of superheroes and what their attributes were. And maybe you, like, like I did, you grew up in the church and you can rattle off the names of God, characters in the Bible, facts about them, attributes that God has. But have you found him? Are you following him? Has that head knowledge informed a pursuit of God? Or are you satisfied just with knowledge? Has it moved you? Or are you living spiritually paralyzed? You know what the what made the wise men wise wasn't just their knowledge. It was that their knowledge informed their actions. Like knowledge at its root just means to know something, but wisdom means letting that inform your life. Or as my dad said, I love my dad, and this is one of my favorite things he's ever said to me, I'll never forget it, is, is knowledge is knowing that tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is knowing not to put it in your fruit salad, right? Knowledge is knowing a fact, but wisdom is knowing how to live in light of that fact. You know, the scribes and the Pharisees, they knew the Old Testaments, they knew the prophets, but they never walked in wisdom. Again, you can read the Bible, you can know the Bible, you can recognize that, but we should recognize that. You can know the Bible and still miss Jesus. We see it with these quote-unquote wise men who ultimately don't go down as the wise men in the Christmas story. They go down as fools because the truth didn't move them. And they tragically, tragically, they miss Jesus. But then we've got the Magi, right, these other official wise men that we call the wise men in the Christmas story. And here's what we know about the wise men. If you're taking notes, get ready. Prepare yourself. Not a whole lot. <laughs> Basically nothing. We know that they're, they're from the east, again, possibly from Babylon or where any of the ten tribes were in exile. Possibly they had some of the prophecies of Daniel. They had some information, a prophecy about this coming of Jesus that informed them, hey, we need to go find him. Another random fact is I love that the word magi can be translated wizard. Like this is Gandalf, Dumbledore, and Merlin, like showing up at the nativity scene. No, that's, that's too far. <laughs> Bible's over here, I'm over here. Uh, we don't know much about who they were. But we know what they did. 
because their knowledge, it informed their actions. Their wisdom, it sparked actions, and their actions went on to define them as wise men. They went down in history as wise men because their, their knowledge informed their actions. You don't get a spot in history very often for just knowing something. Those spots are reserved for people who act on that knowledge and do something or pursue something great. Again, this, this trek that they went on is remarkable. A thousand miles where most people didn't go further than 30 miles from their home. All because that faith sparked action. That knowledge sparked action. Their knowledge and wisdom sparked two actions that I want to look at tonight as we uh, get to the meat of the passage. <laughs> One is pursuing, the other is giving. But to look at their pursuing, again, these men showed up to worship Jesus when the leaders of the temple didn't. They held back. Their knowledge, again, it sparked a pursuit. And here's the irony in this. If these men showed up at the temple and wanted to walk into the temple to worship God, they would have been told no because they were Gentiles. Yet they were the first to walk, one of the first, to walk into Jesus' presence and worship him as king. They were Gentiles. They were outsiders. They would have been looked down upon by the Jewish leaders. But Paul, a former member of the Jewish elite himself, he would write in Ephesians. Again, this was one of the main passages from our series, Race and Politics. But in verse 11 through 13, this is the message version. He says, don't take any of this for granted. It was only yesterday that you, out, you were outsiders to God's ways and had no idea of any of this. Didn't know the first thing about the way God works. Hadn't the faintest idea of Christ. You knew nothing of that rich history of God's covenants and promises in Israel, hadn't a clue about what God was doing in the world at large. But now because of Christ, dying that death, shedding that blood, you who were once out of it altogether are in on everything. The Messiah has made things up between us so that we're now together on this, both non-Jewish outsiders and the Jewish insiders. He tore down the wall we used to keep each other at a distance. As the NIV said, he destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. You know, again, you look at the temple. There was a wall in the temple that speaks to this, or this likely speaks to. And Paul, again, formerly known as Saul, this religious elite, would have known of. Archaeologists who have dug up the temple, they came across this, this phrase on a wall that says, if you cross this threshold, quote, you have only yourselves to blame for your death. You know, it sounds like some segregated Jim Crow nonsense, yet it was in the temple, this racially divisive phrase. But these magi coming from the east, these Gentiles, are literally entering into God's presence, the God in the flesh. And it's a prophetic picture that Jesus was coming to open the door, not just to the insiders, but to the outsiders. Changed the whole way that people worshipped in the past. And in an American culture that is so deeply divided along lines of race, I love that this is addressed in the Christmas story. Because if it doesn't address dark places, if God's incarnation, the Christmas story, doesn't address and bring to light the dark places in our life, then, man, let's put away the Christmas trees and put away the nativity scenes. But I love that God addresses just this, that he brings light, peace, and reconciliation. I love that these wise men, again, Gentiles from the east, came to hang with Jesus when he was a toddler, and Jesus pays that forward the rest of his life. There's a fact that I love repeating that Jesus had 132 interactions in the Gospels, in the New Testament, excuse me. Ten were inside the church or the synagogue. 122 were outside. 
Jesus lived a life in pursuit. Like Steph said so eloquently, just exhorting during worship, as much as we pursue God, we got to recognize that he's been pursuing and is pursuing and always will pursue us. But the fact that Jesus did this, it got the church leaders bent out of shape, that he was spending more time outside the church than inside the church. Now, it says that he would find the place of worship and share there, but these interactions were, were happening outside, and they had the nerve to ask the disciples the question, like, like why, is it, why is it this way? And Jesus caught wind of us, and this caught wind of it, and this was his answer, that I'm here to invite outsiders, not coddle insiders. Again, that's the message version, but I love that phrasing. I'm here to invite outsiders, not coddle insiders. You know, I've been telling many people as we're winding up one year as a campus that, you know, this first year we focused a lot on the weekend service, life groups, these opportunities for our leaders and people that came in the church that are already serving their tails off to be poured into and to be equipped for the work of ministry. You know, that's really been our focus in the first year. We didn't want to have people serving so much and then going to do outreach, and then we fracture the family that we're called to build. But I also have always had in mind what we've said from the jump, that if our faith is solely inward focused, then it's, it's out of focus. You know, if we huddle up on the weekend, but we never break that huddle and, and seek the lost and seek those outsiders like Jesus did, we're not living with his perspective or his heart. So this year, you know, in 2017, I'm hoping, you know, to continue to step into moments of outreach because, again, Jesus came to reach outsiders, to interact people outside of the four walls of the church in addition to inside. And that leads me to the second action that the wise men took in their wisdom, and that was giving. You know, two days ago, a handful of us hopped into four cars with 100 bags of groceries, 100 paper bags, heavy bags of canned goods, uh, of all kinds of stuff in these bags. And uh, shout out to those that bagged it on Wednesday, right? The half dozen people that showed up at the Laternos to bag it so that we could distribute it on Thursday. It was a lot of work that went into this. And we distributed it to people that have a need in College Square. And we did it Thursday afternoon for about an hour and a half. And there was one home we stepped into where we were able to carry it into the kitchen, greet them, and even pray for them. Because when we went in there, the wife, she had had Something happened with her foot to where she was out of work. She was on crutches. So immediately I felt right at home, right, with the, the year that Steph's had. And so we just started talking. And he was talking about how she's been out of work, and he's had such a hard time finding work. He had worked that day for the first time in weeks because somebody just knocked on his door. They had a job, and they wanted to pay him. But he said they've been pinching pennies so much that without that food, he doesn't know if they would have made it. You know, we, got, we can't forget that Jesus was born into a similar situation in poverty. It's not just that they showed up at the manger because there was no room, but when you look at Jesus being dedicated, the fact that they brought two birds instead of a lamb, it, it speaks to the remarkable poorness, poverty that Jesus was raised in. And it's after the dedication of Jesus that the wise men show up with their gifts. Now, if you're a, uh, what is it, the, the oils, essential oils. If you're an essential oil fanatic, no doubt you've got myrrh and frankincense underlined and highlighted twice in two different colors. But the gift of gold is also significant because the, the gift, hey, I'm not knocking anybody with essential oils either. Steph got a shipment in today. If you're within 10 feet, you'll smell her. But uh, she smells great. She smells like the oils. <laughs> but uh, I hope I'm not in trouble. Anyways, they bring gold. And that gift was pivotal because it's after they leave that the angel comes to Joseph in a dream, right, Cord? Because God speaks through dreams. And he says, hey, you guys need to flee. You need to escape. You need to go to Egypt. 
Now, for a church that was in poverty, again, these long trips, these exorbitant trips, they weren't free. They were dangerous. But that gift of gold, no doubt, it's not, it doesn't say it in the Bible, but when you look at the circumstance, no doubt went a long way in getting them on that journey and literally saving Jesus' life from Herod, who wanted to kill him. Now, did the wise men know when they went on this journey and they chose these gifts that the gift would have that impact? No. <laughs> they just had generous hearts that sought to give. You know, did anybody bagging those groceries on Wednesday night know that we were going to step into that home and we were going to meet that need for those people in that powerful way and have an opportunity to pray for them and, and speak Jesus' name over that situation? No. They just had generous hearts that wanted to give. And they stepped into that moment. You know, when we give with a heart of worship, God can use it in incredible ways. Tonight, just bringing $37, we can build an orphanage in Haiti. And just like God, he tackles race and racism. Within the Christmas story, he tackles giving and generosity. You know, the wise men show us, as Randy Alcorn has said, that giving affirms Christ's lordship. It dethrones me, and it enthrones him. Did the wise men know every detail of the prophecies of Jesus being God in the flesh and all those different prophecies? Probably not. But they were recognizing him as king in this moment. Their giving, it affirmed Christ's lordship. So God doesn't call all of us to give up all of our possessions and go live in monasteries like monks. But he does call us to recognize, like the wise men did, that there is no one greater. And we have a great calling to give ourselves to. Psalm 24 verse 1 says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all its people belong to him. Just like that story of the child and his father's sixpence. Like everything we have has come from God. Everything we give is just us giving back to God. Nothing is mine. It's all his. It's a reality that should affect our priorities. It should affect our stewardship, realizing that, that we're stewards of this on God's behalf, and it should affect our generosity. You know, because these wise men stewarded that prophecy, they were able to go on this remarkable journey and give these gifts to the Holy Family, Mary, Joseph, and Jesus. And because they stewarded those gifts, they were able to escape to Egypt. Because they were responsible, they were likely able to make that journey to Egypt. And Jesus was able to go on and walk out the greatest calling, greatest purpose, greatest destiny anybody has ever had. But let me remind you and encourage you tonight, every person in this room tonight has a destiny and a calling and a purpose. And those are often sparked by Gifts generously given, these journeys that God calls us to. And to come full circle, to come full circle, you all have a journey, a purpose, and a destiny. It says in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all Scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong, and it teaches us to do what is right. Again, the whole point of this entire series leading up to Christmas is that we'll go below surface depth because it's so easy when you've gone through dozens, literally dozens of Christmases in your life to be like, yeah, I've seen this episode before. I've, I've read this passage a hundred times over my life. I've heard it and just kind of skim the surface, kind of fades to the background, like intentional blindness. And if you've been a Christian long enough, sometimes it's easy to do that with the Bible as a whole. You've read through the Bible every year since you got saved. Dozens of times. I've heard this before. But again, in 2 Timothy 3.16, in the message version, it says, Through the word, we're put together and shaped up for the tasks that God has for us. We're shaped up for the purpose God has for us. We're shaped up for the destiny he has for us. 
If you never dive into Scripture in all its depth, then you won't walk in the depth of your destiny. If you never walk in Scripture in all of its depths, you'll never walk deeply in the destiny God has for you. You may still taste eternity, but you won't taste the maturity that God calls us all to. Not so we can be experts on God. Not so we can write great blogs and great sermons, but so that we can have encounters with God, get to know God, have him impact our life, and then share that impact with the people around us. Because, again, we're not called to just come here and encounter God, but we're called to go back out from these four walls and share that encounter and share that impact that he's had on us. You know, if I could have the worship team come up, we're going to go back into it as well. And, again, it might not seem like you have a lot to give. You might not seem like you have a lot to offer, but we generously give because God first generously gave to us. As it says in 1 John 4, 19, we love each other. We generously love because he first loved us. So we're going to remind ourselves, as we did before, that it is well. You know, some of us have had rough 2016s. Some of us are just praying, God, let next year be better than this year. <laughs> I know my wife has been one of them, so she can relate when she sings these words, but come on, let's stand and let's go back into worship and remind ourselves that it is well because of the Christmas we're about to celebrate, because of the fact that Jesus came, the word took on flesh and moved into the neighborhood, <laughs> pitched his tent in humanity so that he could save all of humanity. No matter whether we think it is well or not, the cross, the Christmas story, it tells us it is. Whether we feel like we have peace or we're struggling with anxiety or not, the Christmas story can step into any one of those situations because Jesus stepped into flesh. And not just to be born in a manger, but so that he could eventually go to that cross and die for us. Jesus, we thank you. Man, you think about the calling that's on our lives to to step out and share the impact that God's made on our hearts and our lives. And, and sometimes we, it's like, well, it's uncomfortable. I'd have to step out of my comfort zone. I don't think anybody takes a bigger step out of their comfort zone or out of a comfort level than Jesus did. In the throne room of God to a manger. Again, like the child said, probably smelled like poop. Like he went from the throne room of God to being born in a feeding trough. Vulnerable <laughs> and naked. God, I pray that you would challenge us tonight. Challenge us to go deep into your word. Challenge us to, to not just become experts on your word, but to have encounters with you, God, that, that fuel us, that refine us, that challenge us, that convict us. God, that show us, as it says in 2 Timothy 3.16, God, it shows us all you have for us, prepares us for all the tasks that you have for us. But God, tonight we reflect again on the fact that Jesus was born in Bethlehem so that we could say 2,000 years later that it is well. No matter what season we're in, it is well. No matter what we're facing tomorrow, what we came out of last week, it is well because Jesus' blood covers us. It doesn't just cover us, it calls us forward into purposes and destinies and callings that go exceedingly and abundantly above and beyond what we would even ask for ourselves, Lord God. So this moment, God, we step into your presence again and we sing these words. God, I pray that they would become our prayers and fuel us as we move forward. God, we say again that it is well.